Christ Church, please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 39, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. Uh, we will continue our series entitled, Rejoice, a Savior is Born, as we look at some of the birth narratives from uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, where, of course, we learn the most about uh, the advent and uh, birth of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, in the four Gospels. Luke chapter 1 and beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds as your word is read and preached in these few minutes together. Lord, we do believe in the power of the gospel, that your spirit in the preaching of the gospel saves, gathers, and builds up and protects and preserves your church. And so we pray, Lord, that as your gospel is proclaimed through word and sacrament, that you would be pleased to nourish us, strengthen us, and open our eyes, that we might see Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The refrain comes from that a hauntingly beautiful Advent hymn that we love to sing here uh, in this congregation and that so many love to sing, that hymn uh, that was written in the 15th century uh, in France. Uh, this medieval uh, hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, calls us to rejoice, to rejoice in God's redemptive plan fulfilled in the coming of the Son of God to save Sinners, uh, liberal theologians want to make Christmas about uh, God identifying with the world by sending his son into the world 
as one of us and so that we could have solidarity and unity and love and not be at odds. And it sort of stops right there. And there's no real redemptive thrust, no real focus on why Christ actually was born as it concerns our sin, the debt of our sins. Christ wasn't just born uh, to have solidarity with humanity. He was born to die for sinful humanity. This refrain reminds us of that. It's not just that He came, it stirs our hearts and our tongues to rejoice. It also fills our heart with wonder when we ask the question, why did He come? How did He come? In our passage for this morning, we witnessed the Virgin Mary magnifying the Lord from the depths of her soul. This is a woman of piety. This is a teenage girl filled with love for God, an obedient heart, a thankful heart, and as we will soon see, a heart that knows that she, as with anyone else, needs a Savior. Here's the thing. As we consider this passage, we are called to do the same. In fact, you and I have been created to do this. It is the fact that God himself has created us to be worshipers, to have fellowship with God, to have communion with God. And because of sin, we have been put out of communion with God. And so God sent his son into the world to reestablish that communion, to repair that brokenness, to remove that hostility, to remove the curtain from fellowship with God into the Holy of Holies. What happened to the curtain when Christ died on the cross? It tore in two. It was symbolic of our gaining access to the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as we consider all of these things, we, like Mary, are meant to treasure these things in our hearts and to enter into this rejoicing. We are called, dear ones, to enter into this rejoicing the magnifying of the Lord for this marvelous work of redemption that God has done in the fullness of times, all anticipating the end times when Christ will return. Now, <clears throat> of course, we uh, come to the uh, Magnificat, this Song of Mary, with uh, some passages prior uh, to it. Of course, the one that I preached last week uh, where we had this uh, visit by the angel Gabriel to Mary in Nazareth, and uh, this, this announcement was made that uh, she would conceive and bear a son, and they would call uh, his name Jesus, uh, for he would uh, take away their sins. Uh, and uh, Mary is saying, how can this be? I'm a, I'm a virgin. And of course, it was the Holy Spirit who mysteriously overshadowed her, and uh, in her womb uh, was placed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ is both God and he is man. He's one person with two natures, and he's born into this world to be our mediator. And so what happens next? Well, Mary, we learn uh, there uh, in verse... Um, in verse, uh, 20, uh, in verse 39, uh, that Mary arose and went in haste to visit her uh, cousin. She went uh, in haste and she entered into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 
Uh, and so we remember back to what happened to uh, Zechariah uh, prior to this, earlier on uh, in the book of Luke, that he's in the temple and he's carrying out his exercises. And of course, we know for years he's been praying for uh, a child and he and his wife have been barren. And while he's doing his services as a priest in the temple, Gabriel shows up and said, you will have a son. And of course, we know this son will be John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, the one who would declare that um, the Christ uh, has come. Uh, and so Mary then rushes to visit uh, Elizabeth um, and wants to uh, fellowship with her. And when Elizabeth, verse 41, heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Uh, now, you might read this, um, uh, especially if you're a Baptist, and think, well, this is just, it's just left in eye. This happens all the time when uh, children move around in the womb. I remember when we had our first uh, over in Edinburgh and Marla was pregnant, uh, we would always give, we'd always, uh, Marla would always have this uh, orange juice, ice, icy orange juice, and when she would drink the orange, the baby would just go crazy in her womb, kicking and moving, and uh, it was entertainment. Um, and so you, you might read this and say, well, yeah, babies leap in the womb. That's just what they do. But then it's interesting to note that Elizabeth, that is mentioned a second time in the passage, uh, verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Already, Elizabeth recognizes that her Lord is in Mary's womb. And then she says, and behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So while we can't say in no uncertain terms what's going on here, we can say that the Bible emphasizes that this child leapt in the womb when the Lord, Jesus Christ, in the womb of the Virgin Mary came into the room. There was a leaping. Uh, and so what are we to make of this? Well, what are we, we are to make of this is that this whole uh, age of accountability thing is just not biblical. All children are sinners, and all children need Christ. Amen? And children that are born into Christian families are different than children who are not born into Christian families. Not that they are not sinners, but that they are given a different status as a covenant child in the context of the covenant community, and they are growing up hearing the promises of God and encouraged to believe those promises. Now, in many cases like many of you, because I've heard your testimonies, you say something like this. You know, Pastor, I do not remember a day where I did not believe the gospel. Well, you know what? You're in good company. Same with John the Baptist. Same with John the Baptist. In fact, to go back and to read this, say, oh, wow, I left in my mother's womb when I was an infant. Does God work in the hearts of infants? Answer, yes. Yes, it's all a great mystery. It's all a great mystery, but God works in the hearts of infants. And we pray that our children from infancy will have the gift of faith given to them as they are born again, and so that as they grow to know and love their parents and exercise uh, their minds and uh, to exercise their bodies in ways that are 
are, are new at every stage of development, that they will also exercise faith. Faith in Christ, which is a what? Gift from God, lest any man should boast. The greatest testimony is the one where someone says, I don't remember a day where I didn't believe. You know why? Because God gave you that faith even before you had the capacity to exercise that faith. And he doesn't just give it to everybody willy-nilly. He gives it to his elect, which is a great mystery. And we also know when we think about all those that profess faith in Christ, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them will say, well, yes, I was taught this by my father or my mother or my father and mother or my grandparents or my uncle or aunt. Almost every Christian in the world has some kind of a testimony like that. Now, it's not true for everyone. But God works through the family. He's been pleased to do so from the very beginning. That's why we have our understanding of covenant theology and covenant headship. And so when we read this text that Christ, that rather that John the Baptist leapt in the womb when Mary walked in the door, we ought not to just pass over that, especially when it's mentioned twice. But we ought to rejoice in a God who works in the hearts of our children. And we should with expectation raise our children in the Lord. We don't raise them with the, with the kind of uncharitable assumption that God is not working in their life. We raise them with the charitable assumption that God is working in their life through his word, which is powerful and efficacious. And it's delightful uh, to recognize this as we think about John leaping uh, in his mother's womb. Well, Mary was a woman of faith, wasn't she? In fact, it says here, verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She is not blessed because she's done something. She is blessed because God has done something to her. Salvation is not first and foremost about what we do in response to God's grace. It's about God's grace doing a work in us. We are objects of grace, objects of mercy. We are not those who make ourselves worthy, who upon the work of our own sort of inherent faith that we're born with, exercise. Rather, we are objects of grace and mercy. And so whenever God has grace and mercy on us, whether it's from the earliest of days or later, we are objects of God's grace. And he gives us a gift called faith. And so here it says, blessed is she who believed. She's blessed because she believed in that belief, that faith was given to her as a gift from God of all that was spoken to her from the Lord. Jesus Christ, then, is our one true mediator. John Owen, in his classic work on communion with God, says this, quote, The Father, that is God the Father, communicates no issue of his love unto us but through Christ. And we make no return of love unto him but through Christ. He is the treasury wherein the Father disposeth all the riches of His grace, taken from the bottomless mine of His eternal love. God's love is a bottomless mine. It can never be exhausted. His love for you can never be 
exhausted. You're going to him for grace and mercy and love. It can never be exhausted. He never says, you know, you've had enough grace this week. Go away and come back later. It's grace upon grace, John chapter 1, that he gives to you. And you receive it by faith. And so Mary understood this, I think, on some extraordinary level for her age. And she says in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. Now this is where uh, the Latin uh, title of this song uh, is, uh, comes from, uh, the Magnificat, as you've heard it called before. It comes from the Latin, which means magnifies. Uh, and it's taken from the first sentence of her song, uh, and it's from the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, some people say this couldn't have been sung by Mary. She would have been too young, too inexperienced. She wouldn't have had the kind of spiritual maturity. Well, they say that Luke must have written this because he would have been the one to write it. He would have been the sophisticated one. But that's nonsense. Mary was a pious, biblically knowledgeable, and godly young lady. This song has quotes from or allusions to 11 Old Testament scriptures. 11 Old Testament scriptures. Mary's Magnificat, her, her song is filled with scripture. So that when she gave praise to God, it echoed back to God the truth that he had revealed to her. It's the, the best of our prayers and the best of our singing is an echoing back to God his truth. Not trying to be creative uh, in sort of the worst humanistic ways. But echoing back to God that which he has revealed to us. This is what Mary is doing in her song of praise. Whether she declared uh, this song spontaneously when she uh, was in Elizabeth's house, or whether she worked on this in order to uh, declare when she arrived, we don't know. But what we do know is that this was the virgin's response to Elizabeth's amazing blessing and the reality of what was happening in and through her. Now we can briefly unpack this song of Mary, this Magnificat, by looking at it in three parts. First of all, there is Mary's testimony of God's grace. Mary's testimony of God's grace. Look with me again at verses 46 through 50. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. For those who fear him. Notice, first of all, that God is her Savior. God is her Savior. Mary knows that she is not without sin. The first thing that is true about, about a Christian, a true Christian, someone who is born again and united to Christ, is that they know they are sinners. They will readily admit and confess that they are sinners. 
And Mary knows that she is not without sin. She knows her sinful condition. She knows that she is not capable, therefore, of saving herself through her own efforts, through her own piety, through her own spiritual performance. She understands that she cannot work her way to God. She knows that she doesn't get a special dispensation to enter heaven because of her unique role in the history of redemption. And so from the deepest part of her soul, she magnifies the Lord and she rejoices in God, her Savior. Let me ask you a question this morning. If Mary needs the gospel, is it true that you need the gospel? How true is it that we need the gospel if Mary needs the gospel? Mary plays one of the most glorious roles in the history of redemption. And she needs the gospel. She admits her need of the gospel. She acknowledges that God is her savior and that God has done great things for her. How how true is this then for us? If she doesn't get a special dispensation, why would you think that you get a special dispensation? To think that perhaps... If you're here this morning and you think, well, I believe I'm, I'm right with God because I'm making a good effort. Or I believe I'm right with God because I, I do some nice things for others and I don't live like those people over there. Or I'm right with God because God's a forgiving God and he understands I have good intentions and in the things I try to do. And so I believe God will will be okay with me in the end. And the Bible doesn't teach any of that. In fact, why would God send his only son into the world to save us from our sins through his life, death, and resurrection if there was some other way to do this? The fact is there is not. God sent his son into the world because that's the only way we could be saved. By God's eternal son assuming human flesh carrying out the law that we failed to carry out and to obey, and then as a perfect law keeper, dying on the cross for our sins. If she does not get a special dispensation, why would we think we get one? And here's the thing as well. It's been taught in the Roman Catholic tradition that Mary was sinless. This text proves otherwise. Christ is the only sinless one. Mary was born of natural generation. Mary, she uh, uh, inherited the sin of Adam even as we do. And Christ was born of Mary. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In addition to God being her Savior, notice that God blessed her. Of course, Elizabeth said this, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Here Mary states that she recognizes what a blessed and privileged role she's been given in redemptive history. It was every Jewish woman's hope that she would be the bearer of the Messiah. It's partly why barrenness was so devastating uh, to Jewish women in uh, those days. Mary was blessed beyond measure. 
And so she was right in saying that all generations will call her blessed. And even down to our own generation, we call her blessed this morning for her place in redemptive history. Then with some similar themes from Hannah's beautiful prayer in 1 Samuel 2, you'll remember Hannah uh, going into the temple and praying uh, day after day and night after night that she would have a child. And, and uh, this prayer would have been in Mary's mind when she said these things. She said, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And here we must recognize that Mary highlights different attributes of God. Do you see them there? First of all, God's omnipotence. She says he is mighty. Secondly, his holiness, his, the culmination of all of his perfections and his holiness, and the fact that he's merciful. Mary was making clear that Almighty, the Almighty, Holy God of Israel was merciful. In wrath, he has remembered mercy. In judgment, he has given salvation through his son. I was sharing with the men's Bible study on Thursday morning that while Marla and I were out for a walk last Monday, a man rode his bike by us in downtown Charleston And it was a black shirt with white letters, and it said, God is not angry. That made me angry. Because God is most certainly angry. He is most certainly angry. Jonathan Edwards, of course, wrote the marvelous, powerful, illustrative sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God is angry. But he is at one and the same time full of mercy and love. God is not like us in that we have various emotions that go forth and we are filled with passions, as it were. God is not like that. Any time that God describes himself in human terms, it's analogical in Scripture. And so when God is, is, is the... the, the um, God is full of wrath or God is showing his love. He doesn't stop being perfectly loving when he's exhibiting his wrath. And when he's showing his love, he doesn't stop exhibiting his wrath. All of these things are true of God all the time. That is a really important point when we think about our doctrine of God. God is not full of passions. He is one. He is holy meaning that at the very same time, all the time, he is perfectly wrathful, perfectly loving, perfectly just, perfectly merciful, and all the other attributes. But to say that God is not angry is to say that God is not God. Because sin strikes out against his holiness. Sin is rebellion. And so God is indeed angry. He is wrathful, but in wrath he has remembered mercy through the sending of his Son. You know, some picture God only as a kind of celestial police officer who is, you know, like the ones in Mount Pleasant, kind of hiding behind the overpass, just waiting for you to whiz by 10, 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Just waiting. And God wants to get you. 
and he delights in condemning people. But this is not the picture we get in Scripture, is it? God is holy. God is perfect. His standard is perfection. How could it not be? He's God, and the law is an expression of his character. He would not be God if he wasn't holy and if his standard wasn't perfection. Yes, God will judge the wicked who do not repent by God's grace and and who would remain in their rebellion. But God is also merciful to an undeserving people like us. He sent his own son into the world to assume human nature in order to fulfill all of God's holy requirements on our behalf. And then, as he has lived out for 33 years perfectly the law of God in every way from the heart, in his inward heart and his outward actions, perfectly conforming to the law of God, he then, as a perfect, righteous lamb, lays his own life on the cross and becomes a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for you and for me. He, 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 he becomes sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God. That's why Christ came. This is the gospel. Christ drinks down the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of God's blessing by faith. This is what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was anticipating. It's what Isaiah 53 looks forward to. And the Apostle Paul clearly sets this forth, of course, in the book of Romans, chapter 3 and verse 21. Romans 3, 21 and following, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, in case you were wondering and you were a first century Jew or first century Gentile, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We're talking about lots of gifts this year. All the gift exchanging. I was sharing with the ladies on Wednesday evening in the Christmas devotional at the Christmas uh, fellowship that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, an essay on Christmas, and he talked about three different kinds of Christmases. Uh, The first one is Gospel Christmas. That's what we uh, have been celebrating here this morning, that Christ was born to save sinners. Then there is the the, uh, holiday Christmas where there's lots of merrymaking and getting together with family and friends and eating way too much. And then there is the sort of merchandise Christmas, where you're stressed out for a month trying to figure out what you're going to buy everybody that already has everything. And, uh, and having, as C.S. Lewis said, even having to buy gifts for people you don't like. So we have these, these gifts that are given at Christmas time. And we understand what that is, don't we? It's a gift given. It's not something you earned. It's just received. You just receive it. And here Paul says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. We just receive it by faith. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, again, Romans 3, 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath bearer by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so when God sends his son into the world to assume human flesh and to be the God-man, quite literally one person with two natures, he sends the one who is not only willing, but able to accomplish our redemption. And he becomes that perfect mediator. And so we join the hymnist from uh, the 15th century in France who writes, O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This was the song of Mary. This was the song of Mary. And notice she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Once again, we get back to the personal dynamic. Mary says she is my Savior. True Christians, those who are united to Christ, say without hesitation, my Savior and my God. Not just our Savior, my Savior and my God. Mary declares that God is her merciful Savior and that he has blessed her beyond measure. And it causes her to sing and to delight herself in the Lord. Secondly, we see, that Mary's, confe- we see Mary's confession of God's love and justice. Look at, look at me at verses 51 through 53. <clears throat> he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Here we are reminded of a theme that runs all throughout Scripture. And it's countercultural and it's counterintuitive. And that is that God humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. We see it over and over again in Old Testament history. And Mary is recalling that history here. Think of God destroying the world with a flood while saving Noah's little family. Think of God sending the plagues upon mighty Egypt, this great nation, and freeing Israel from the grip of the prideful Pharaoh. Or how about David's defeat, the shepherd boy's defeat of uh, Goliath and the Philistines? Or what about Gideon's amazing victory over the Midianites with only a handful of men? You know the story. Over and over again, God's saying, no, there are too many. God wants the glory. He deserves the glory. He knows that when he gets the glory that we are most satisfied and joyful in Him. That's why we were created. How about God's humbling of Nebuchadnezzar? God humbles the proud and exalts the humble, and He shows His power through the weak things of the world. He shows His power through the weakness of the world. The greatest example of this, of course, is the Savior of the world, being born into a poor Jewish family. Born among the animals. Laid in a manger. And who 33 years later would be nailed to a wooden cross. 
God's economy is different than the world's. God's ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We see that so clearly here in the birth of Christ. Most would have thought that Pharaoh was much more blessed than Moses or that the rich man was much more blessed than Lazarus or that the extremely wealthy unbeliever is much more blessed than uh, the cancer-filled, dying Christian who's on their way to heaven, but we know this is not so. The recipients of God's grace in Christ are inheritors of greater blessings than anything this world can offer. Amen? Than anything this world can offer. And as soon as you start believing the lie that what the world offers you is better than what Christ has given you in himself, then you begin down a road that if you continue down, it will lead to apostasy and the walking away from God altogether. And so we must not believe those lies. What profit does it bring a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Isn't this why Mary said that God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty? Finally, we come to verses 40, 55, 54 and 55, Mary's declaration of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Look there with me. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary was a covenant theologian. She believed in covenant theology. She was hearkening back, of course, to the covenant of Abraham made back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That seed was about to be born when Mary declared her song of praise. This blessing to the nations was about to be born in Bethlehem. This made Elizabeth and Mary and the en utero John rejoice on this glorious day, on this visit. Isn't it amazing how there's this conversation between these two ladies in first century Judah, and it becomes a center point of the birth narratives of the fullness of times of the redemption of all of God's people throughout history. It's the way the Lord works. You know, if we were writing the story, we probably would have these conversations happening in a palace somewhere amidst heads of state, great people. But it's through the humble, through the weak. And so we must always be humbling ourselves because of this reality. Luke tells us in verse 56 that Mary remained with her about three months before she returned to her home in Nazareth. And I'm sure that as she was returning to home that she was considering those words that were said to her by the angel Gabriel that nothing is impossible with God. Just a couple of words of application. 
In verses 26 through 56, we see a lot of rejoicing going on. John the Baptist rejoicing in utero, Elizabeth rejoicing, Mary responding to all of this good news and, this, and these extraordinary events. Uh, the question for every one of us, however, this morning is, are we entering into this rejoicing? How are we responding to this news? How are we responding to this good news that, that a Savior was born in Bethlehem? Is it life as usual? Is it living life just like all of our unbelieving neighbors? Is there much difference? <clears throat> or are we entering into that rejoicing? Are we magnifying the Lord from the depths of our soul and seeking to do that? We never do that perfectly. We never will do that as we ought this side of heaven. But is it our aim? Is it our desire? Is it what we wake up seeking to do? Are we rejoicing in the Lord? Are we rejoicing that all is not lost, that we are not lost if we have been found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that is found and received through faith in Christ? This week I was reading a chapter in T.J. Crawford's book. He was a Scottish minister in the 19th century. And on the section of the, the nature, the two natures of Christ, there's a wonderful nugget that I wanted to share with you this morning. Quote, Manhood in its primal integrity and untainted excellency belongs to Christ alone. And he is emphatically the man for all mankind, the model man, the representative man, alone fitted to be, without exception, and without qualification, the object of our faith and hope and love and honor and imitation to all of his brethren. This is such good news. The man, Christ Jesus, is now at the right hand of God, born to a virgin, perfectly obeyed the law of Moses, died on the cross for your sins and mine, ascended into heaven, and even now represents those who are his, intercedes for us. May our rejoicing this Christmas remember the virgin birth and all the glory that's associated with it. And may we find our hope in him alone.